looks like Miss Long is over there to um, take you to children's worship. So head on out there. Some, some running, some walking nonchalantly. It's great. It's glorious. Um, hey, I have a hurt foot, so I'm going to sit in a stool while I preach. And I do that for two reasons. One is, well, because people who love me told me, you need to sit. Uh, you need to get keep pressure off your foot. Also, there's a guy in the church that said, you're not going to be able to do that, Joe. Like, I don't think, I know you. I don't think you're going to be able to sit the whole time. And so I took that as a challenge. (laughs) I will sit the entire time. During the first service, I did. I squirmed a lot. So if you're distracted by that, I apologize. I just can barely sit. So, um, but I'm going to. Um, So there you go. All right. Um, uh, As you know, if you've been around here, you know, we've been walking through like the, uh, in some ways, the life of Jesus. We're looking at the different um, the different stories that tell us more about Jesus through the church calendar. Uh, one of the great things that does is we're able to see very systematically, uh, his life and the life of the church. One thing that we lose in that though, is, uh, we, when we come to a text, we haven't been talking about the prior text. And so we can lose, uh, the context and a text without its context is a pretext for Something, I don't know, <laughs> something bad. Um, so I just, we're, we're looking at Luke 8, 26 to 39, but the text before that, like literally right before that in Luke 8, Jesus, it says in verse 22, one, this is before what's in the, in the bulletin. One day he got into a boat with his disciples. So all of this is on one day. And it says in 22, one day he got into a boat with his disciples. And then it tells the, the very short story of him getting into a boat. He falls asleep. A storm comes. The disciples freak out and say, obviously, Jesus, you hate us. You don't love us. We are going to die. And Jesus wakes up and calms the storm. And then it says this in verse uh, 25, Jesus says to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Who then is this? Who is this? The winds and the waves obey him. So as we come to this text in Luke eight that we're looking at, it's answering that question. It's answering who is this? So he that. Literally is the verse before that. And then it says this in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. This is what's in your text and on the screens behind me, or in your bulletin on the screens behind me. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you do? What have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man for many a time. It had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, 
for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Uh, Before I say anything else, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the beauty of your ministry. We thank you, King Jesus, that as you reign back then and as you reign today, you not only give us the spoils of war and the blessings of salvation and sanctification, but you also defeat yours and our enemies. We thank you, Jesus, that we can rest in your victory. Help us today to see that. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So I have entered a phase of life that uh, is new to me, uh, that some of you guys have been through, where I have a child who is driving. Yes, now you can pray for us. Uh, We have a child who has his driver's permit, and uh, so... I have experienced, we also play this game at our house called Shotgun. Maybe you know it, you've heard of it, that if you want to sit in the front seat, you yell shotgun when you're outside and in view of the car. There's specific rules you have to follow. Um, at, at which point some kids would like run outside, see the vans, shotgun, and then run back inside before all of us are out. Does that fall? I don't know. Um, but at one point, a couple weeks ago or a couple days ago, I don't remember when, uh, my son was driving And some of my girls were coming with us and they came outside and said shotgun. And then I was like, well, I'm pretty sure I think I have to sit shotgun. I think that's legal. I think that like I have to be shotgun. But it did start a a conversation in my own head where I was like, why do I have to sit shotgun? Like, what would I do if he veers off terribly? Like, I don't have like a brake or a gas here. Like, uh, what would I, literally, what would I do? I don't know what I would do. I have, I, I am powerless in this situation. And then I know some of you are thinking, Jesus, take the wheel. I know that's what you're thinking. I know that's what you're thinking. And which, what does that mean? Truly, what does that mean? Because when, when situation are you in where you're like, take the wheel? Are you an action star? That's like, I'm going to jump out of the car right now onto the hood of another car where I need you to take the wheel. Who does that? Who says someone take the wheel? That's ridiculous. Okay, but I digress. Um, I have realized that I'm very powerless in that situation. I am powerless in the sitting there with him driving. He is an, he is an excellent 15-year-old driver. 
an excellent 15-year-old driver. I mean those, all those words. Um, so it's, it hasn't been that terrible, but it still does. I, I've realized that I feel very powerless. As we come to this text, the big question is, what is the power of Jesus? To reveal the ultimate power of Jesus is the purpose of the text. And that has been a question that's running throughout the Gospels, running throughout Luke for a while, is by whose authority are you doing what you're doing, Jesus? By whose power do you have what you're doing? Um, Everyone in this room, uh, not everyone, but many people in this room are probably not asking that question, who is this Jesus? The question that the disciples are asking. But some of you are asking a related question, where is this power? Um, if you're in Richmond, Virginia in 2019 and you're Sunday morning sitting in a church, you probably know who Jesus is. You probably have heard a lot of the stories about Jesus. You probably know that he has, he himself has declared himself to be the son of God. You know that he has done things and maybe you're sitting here and you believe those things. Yes, he has done those things. He is the son of God. He truly is my savior and salvation. Um, but I know that everyone in this room at some point still asks the question, well, where is this power? If Jesus truly does have this power, as scripture tells us, he has power. And scripture tells us in other places, he not only has power, but he gives great blessings, the spoils of war to his people. If all of that is true, if one plus one equals two, those things equal, we should lead powerful, full lives. And I say that and everyone in this room is like, well, that's not true. I mean, maybe some days you feel that way, but that's not necessarily true. So what I want us to do as we look at this is ask the question, how do we have access to this power? If Jesus is powerful enough to do all these things, then why do I not feel it? Um, Over these past few weeks, we have in some ways looked at the Holy Spirit, the great beauty of the salvation and the the gifts of the Spirit. Steve specifically last week talked about that very, very thing, the gifts of the Spirit and what what that provides for us. This week, we're talking about what he does to the opposite powers. There's the Holy Spirit, the great beauty that is in the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And here we see Jesus working in the dark, working with and against the dark spirits. We see it very clearly, clearly in this text. Um, if you know, we just finished vacation Bible school around our church. And I do a lot with the vacation Bible school for, um, for VBS, for our church. And it runs from Sunday to Wednesday. And so we, and then we have a dinner on Thursday. So these past few years, Sunday to Wednesday, four nights where we talk about Jesus. And this year, it was talking about the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus being our king. He is our king. So I'm talking to four-year-olds up to fourth grade, up to like 10-year-olds. We're talking about the kingdom of Jesus. And so what we did this year was we looked at Matthew 21 and 22. They're two chapters. And we talked about four stories within those chapters to talk about the kingdom of Jesus. The first night we talked about Jesus entering Jerusalem, you know, the Palm Sunday story, laying down the coats and the palms, Jesus coming in. Kids know that Jesus enters your world. He comes into your world, wherever you are. He comes into your world. That's the kind of king he is. He enters your world. Is that good news? Yes, that's good news. 
The second day, we talked about the very next story in Matthew 21 where Jesus cleanses the temple. He kicks out those uh, folks that were uh, desecrating his father's house, the temple. Um, this kind of gets a little sticky to start talking about those things. But, but the good, I, I saw this as a good thing because in that same story, right, the very next verse, it talks about how he just kicked out all those people, but then they brought the lame and the blind and the paralyzed and Jesus healed them. So I could easily say, all right, kids, Jesus gets rid of the bad guys and he heals his friends. I think that's true. But I hope you're seeing that I had some, it was kind of starting to get difficult to start talking about um, to four-year-olds, to fourth-graders, how Jesus gets rid of the bad guys. Um, on day three, we talked about the parable of the, the wedding feast. The king calls a wedding feast, and he invites folks, and those folks don't come. And then he, ta- and then he sends his servants out to go get, get people from all over, good people and bad people. So I could talk to kids and say, Our king, our Jesus Christ, our king is the kind of king that goes out everywhere. And the gospel goes anywhere and everywhere, calls good people and bad people alike. If you're in this room and you're good, if you're in this room and you're bad, he calls you to his kingdom. He calls you to come and respond to that. This is great news. I will admit there's a part of that parable in which the king says, he took the people that didn't call, that, that didn't respond to the wedding invitation at first. He casts them into outer darkness and he destroyed the murderers. He destroyed their towns. I admit I didn't really talk about that. I didn't really talk about that. I just skipped those verses. Um, the, and then on the, the fourth day, we talked about the parable of the tenants, the vineyard. The tenants are there to take care of and provide for, the, the, to grow the vines and the grapes. And then the owner comes back, and what do they do to the servants of the owner? They kill him. The owner sends his son, and they kill him. It's an excellent way to talk about how Jesus, our king, dies for us, is willing to die for us. That's what he does. It's what he did. It's great news. I admit there's a part in that parable where he talks about what do, what do you think God's going to do to those folks who are in the vineyard who killed the son and killed the servants? Um, Jesus, in his parable, says he will send them to a miserable death. I admit I did not talk about that to four-year-olds, to fourth graders. Um, but I say it to you now because you can't understand the kingdom of God If you only talk about him giving us good things and you don't talk about him getting rid of his enemies, Jesus, our great king, destroys his enemies. And if you belong to him, he destroys your enemies. He destroys enemies. It is a battle. It is a war. Jesus Christ came to this earth to fight a war. Not just to come and be a hippie and give you love, joy, and peace. Jesus came to fight a battle, to win a battle. That's what this text tells us. Um, So this, so what I want, what I want to talk about, what's the next slide say? Yeah, there you go. Who are these demons? Who are these demons that are in this text? I promise we'll get to the text in a minute. Who are these demons? Matthew 25, 41, um, Jesus talks about hell as being prepared for Satan 
and his angels. It talks about his angels, really his demons. Revelation 12, 7 to 17, uh, you should go read it, could go read it. It is apocalyptic literature, so understand it's kind of hard to, under, hard to understand in some ways. But what it is, it's the story of Satan's fall. It's the story of his demons' pursuit of Jesus, his demons and his pursuit of the followers of Jesus, the Christians, um, from now until the final judgment. Um, it also, this is where you've heard, I'm sure you've heard this, where a third of the angels fell. Have you heard that before? Demons are the third of the angels. Um, anytime you start taking numbers out of apocalyptic literature, I think you're walking on thin ice. So I'm not going to say that necessarily it was a third of the angels. But I am going to say that scripture's clear in this, that angels fell. They fell with Satan, another fallen angel, and they are fighting a war against God. That's what's happening. That's what scripture's about. Or that's what scripture tells us. Isaiah 14, I read it this morning and I, I almost was going to read it to you this morning and then I decided I shouldn't, um, just in the interest of time. But it's a poetic imagery of the destruction of Babylon, but ultimately the destruction of Satan. Um, and it's beautiful, truly. I, I say it's beautiful. If you understand it as that, it's beautiful. Uh, this afternoon, go read Isaiah 14. Um, and then Luke 9 he sends out the 12 disciples and he specifically says, I send you with power over demons. And then later in Luke 10, he sent out the 12 and they came back and then they do some stuff. And then he sends out 72 disciples and they come back returning with joy and reported what they did. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I don't know if you've heard that before, but he said that. Um, are demons active today? You better believe they are. You better believe they are. But we, you and I mess this up a lot. Um, one of my favorite vacations I went on is me, my wife and I, and a few other friends, we went on a ghost tour in Williamsburg. Uh, it was so fun. It was so fun. So fun. Uh, because you get to go around and you hear history, and they're great storytellers. They're good storytellers. Um, and they, they do, st- it was just, it was a lot of fun. We had a grand time. It was like at midnight. So it was really dark and cool. Um, this past February, I traveled by myself to San Diego, San Diego for a class. And so it was like that afternoon, it was like one afternoon of that day. And, uh, one afternoon within that week that I went on a ghost tour of San Diego, um, by myself. So it was not as fun. It was not as fun. But what they did is you go on this tour and you learn the history of San Diego and you, it's at night and one, at one point we go into a house. It's like a really old house. And they gave us this thing, the shape of a Game Boy. I just dated myself. The shape of a cell phone. Why wouldn't I say cell phone? The shape of cell phone and you hold it and it has like this meter and lights that blink and, and do all that stuff. Supposedly telling you if a ghost is nearby. I had a lot of fun with this. This was a lot of fun. I got to tell you, I walked around that house and I would just like go up into the house and um, the thing would go off. And I did what I think any right thinking person would do at that moment when it went off. I took a selfie. Because... At this point, I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is so stupid. But 
I think it's fun. And maybe I might capture the ghost, you know? Maybe I might get a selfie with a ghost, like, you know, like the ghost right here. Okay. Um, I thought that was great. But I, I say all that just to be funny and silly. I think doing those things can be fun if you want to enjoy good stories and learn history in a fun way. But I say that because all of us know what I'm talking about, these ghost tours, because we all live in a culture where we um, know or think that there are some type of spiritual reality, but we don't know what to do with them. And so what do we do? We shove them aside to silly ghost tours, or we shove them aside to, to silly, terrible horror movies. Or we, we don't know how to deal with this spiritual realm. And so we shove it aside and we make fun of it or we're really into it. Um, I mentioned during the first service, and I'll mention again, um, the, the old Harvard pre- president, she wrote a book about, I forget the name of the book and I forget her name now, terrible, um, where she wrote a book about Americans dealing with death post-Civil War and Americans were really struggling with it didn't know what to do with it. And it was, the, it was a spike in the rise in the occult in America because people in America were like, all these, my family members have died away from home and I don't know what to do with it. I, don't, I, I didn't get to say goodbye to them. I don't know how to reconcile with death. And at that time, it was, it was huge. It was, it was a huge thing because we Americans, I say all of us humans actually, we don't know how to deal with the spiritual realm. But I can tell you all of that stuff. I don't know what, what is true or not true about that. If you want to talk about ghosts later, we can. But I can tell you this. What do demons do? The Bible's very clear. They're real and they oppose Christ and his kingdom. And more specifically, they oppose Christ and the growth of his kingdom. The growth of his people, the growth of his kingdom. Sanctification is a big word for our growth, becoming more and more like Jesus, less and less like our sinful selves. Um, that is what demons do. They're real and they're active. And that's how they operate. Um, Doug Milne wrote this. People in the Western world and churches often play down the force of demonic evil or explain it away under another name. We can go beyond the limits of scripture by attributing too great knowledge and power to evil angels. Certainly, they form a real and constant threat to Christians in their work. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. But they're not supreme. And God includes them in his, his eternal plan for good. Christians must arm against them, but not be paralyzed by their attacks. Satan and his demons are active. But that shouldn't paralyze us. That shouldn't paralyze us. Um, In other words, anything in your life that opposes Christ and his growth of his kingdom in your life, in your heart, mind, soul, body, and in your neighborhoods, in our country, anything that opposes the growth of God's kingdom is, in some ways, demonic work. It is, in some ways, influence from the enemy. Um, As I mentioned, we did vacation Bible school, and last year, like this year, I and a couple of my friends did a song and dance routine. There should be more laughter at that if you know. I, just kidding. Um, to one of, the, or one of the songs of Yorktown. I just think it's so great. From the Hamilton musical. And uh, it, we go from Sunday to Wednesday. As I mentioned, this dance was on Wednesday. Sunday, um, 
or Saturday, I go for a run. And then by Sunday, my foot really starts hurting. By Monday, it's really hurting. By Tuesday and Wednesday, it's really hurting. And I'm supposed to do a song and dance routine. Uh, Sunday, VBS starts, and I give high fives to hundreds of kids. And then I start getting a cold. And then I get a cold even more. Cold even more. Um, After VBS, post VBS on Friday, if you saw me, you thought, do not be near me at all. I had a terrible cold, terrible cold. And when I get a cold, when I get run down, my body starts breaking down, my weak spots start hurting. Does that happen to you? You know, where you, like, you hurt, you just have a cold, but then like the parts in your body that are weak start hurting. The parts of my body that are weak are my teeth. I have terrible teeth. And my shoulder, I had shoulder surgery, so my shoulder hurts. So I woke up Wednesday morning, the night of this dance, um, with, I could barely stand, and I had a terrible cold, my teeth hurt, my sh- I had a crick in my neck, my shoulder hurt. Like I said, I have specific um, reasons why all of those things happened to me. But I would be naive to not think that Satan had something to do with all of that. It takes a special brand of naivete for us Westerners to think that there are not spiritual forces at work in all of the, the horrible things that happen to you and I. If you have a hurt foot, you should go to the doctor. I should hear that. My wife is nodding to me. If you have physical ailments, go to a doctor. But you would be naive to think that Satan doesn't have something to do with that. If your marriage is hurting, go to a psychologist, go to a psychiatrist, go to a counselor. Talk about those things. Talk about it. There are physical, real, relational things you can be talking about. But you would be naive to think that Satan and his minions aren't very happy with what's happening. If you have resentment growing in your heart, there are reasons why you should deal with those resentments. You you should deal with them but you would be naive to think that Satan doesn't have something to do with that. If you're dealing with an addiction in your life, there are real physical things that you can do to deal with that addiction, but you would be naive to think that demons and Satan don't have something to do with that. Do you get my point? There's real spiritual activity happening. So where is the hope? I say the hope is here. Um, uh, Yeah, I'll read this Mark Strauss. What's the, is the Mark Strauss quote? Yeah, Um, he said this. Jesus offers an analogy in Matthew 12. This is when he's interacting with the Pharisees where Jesus essentially says, Satan is like a strong man trying to protect his estate, but Jesus is a stronger man who attacks and plunders Satan's property. Through his exorcisms, Jesus is attacking and taking back Satan's possessions. Through Jesus's exorcisms, and he does a lot, He is taking, he is attacking and taking back Satan's, air quotes, possessions. Those people over whom Satan has gained control. The exorcisms are proof that the kingdom of God is engaging and overwhelming the kingdom of Satan. When the 72 returned in Luke 10, as I mentioned earlier, and he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. The very next verses in verse 19 says, Behold, Jesus says, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, 
and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And I think it's a bit ironic that in this text that we're supposed to get to in just a minute, this text that we, I just read to you, we don't know this guy's name. We have no idea what this guy's name is. Luke doesn't know the name, he, or else he would have recorded it. Mark doesn't know the name, or else he would have recorded it. Jesus knows his name. Jesus knows this man's name. If you are dealing with spiritual forces against you, if you're dealing with sin in your own heart or in the life of others that's affecting you, or you're dealing with actual real physical or mental, whatever those issues are, is spiritual forces at work. All of that is true. There's power found in the name of Jesus. He knows your name. He knows your name. He knows your name. That is what we can rejoice in. That is the power in Jesus's power. And we see this in this text where he travels over to the Gerasenes, where he goes to the farthest reaches. He goes to unclean territory. I mean, think about it. He's been with in, in Jewish country, in and amongst his people. And what does he do? He gets in a boat. He fights winds and waves. And then he gets to the other side, Gentiles. Oh, Gentiles. I can't believe it. He would go to unclean Gentiles. And what does he see there? He sees someone living in tombs, death. Within death itself, he's living there. Jesus has gone to Gentiles. Now he's gone down into the death. And what does he meet there? He meets demons. He's gone into the depths of hell. And what what else does he interact with? Unclean swine, pigs. Jesus goes to the farthest reaches. Where is the farthest reach in your life? Uh, where's the farthest reach in your neighborhood? Maybe would be a more challenging thing to say. Where, what house in your neighborhood do you think Jesus would never want to go to? What house in your neighborhood do you think Jesus would never want you to go to? Well, that would be wrong, of course. Jesus goes there, and you should go there. Um, and what do we do? We get to this man. Again, I said we don't know his name. He was naked. He lived in and among death tombs. You can go visit these tombs today. They've excavated it. You could go see these tombs. It's been going on for a while. He's been chained. There's broken chains everywhere. Demons control him. They force him to live outside of society. He's living in the desert among death. Mark in the parallel passage writes that he bruised himself. He cried out night and day. This man was suffering. This man was truly suffering. What would you have done if you saw that man? What would you have done if that man was walking around in your neighborhood? I don't want to admit what I would have done. So what do the demons do when they see Jesus? They fall down and cry. Um, What did the disciples ask in the boat? Who is this? Who is this? He controls even the winds and the waves. And the next words are the words of the demons. Jesus, son of the most high God. I mean, I just think it's irony and beauty that the disciples didn't know. And yet the answer is given to us by the voice of demons. Jesus, the son of the most high. You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. This text is a a beautiful image of the shuddering of demons as they come in front of Jesus and they see Jesus and they shudder. 
Jesus, son of the most high God. Jesus says, what's your name? Legion, because there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them within it. Not only is he meeting a demoniac, someone possessed by demon, he's meeting someone possessed by lots of demons. And so what do the demons request? We actually cut, there are three requests in this text. And this is the first one. The demons request something. Don't send us into the abyss. Don't do it. They didn't want to go into the abyss. If you know your Bible, you know that's actually where they're going to end up. That's where they will end up. Um, but they don't want to do it. They will fight God to, to not go there. They say, no, send us to pigs instead. Send us to the unclean pigs. Maybe they're you know, playing upon the Jewishness of Jesus. Oh, oh Jesus, you send us into the unclean pigs. You would, you would hate that. I know you would, you, I know you would like that, so, so do that. So Jesus actually gives them their request. He sends them to pigs. Now, this is where you and I, Americans, we don't like the story. We like the story up until now, but then, I mean, hurting animals? That's, that's not nice. On Friday, on the day that I was feeling terrible, I was in the church spreading my sickness. Sorry to everyone who works here. Um, I come home, and immediately as soon as I enter my home, one of my daughters runs up to me and says, Daddy, Daddy, we need to, we need to go down to the other end of the neighborhood right now. You know, remember, I'm like limping. My foot really hurts. I, I can't walk. I'm like, okay, well, I'll drive you down there if you need to. What's, what's down there? Well, there's a, there's a hurt squirrel. And so, you know, I'm a loving dad at this point. I'm like, well, I'm not being sarcastic and mean yet. Um, well, what, what, do you, what makes you think there's a hurt squirrel down there? Well, me and my friend, we were walking down there and the squirrel attacked us. Well, at this point, I'm like, well, I don't want to go near that squirrel. That sounds terrible. I am not going down there. I'm not driving you down to find this hurt squirrel who's going to attack us. And I think I said something along the lines of, there are millions of squirrels in Richmond, Virginia. Let this one die. (laughs) Something like that. She did not like that answer. Do you not care about the squirrels? Um, I you know. I'm not going to say anything more about that. Uh, we love animals. Mark says there's about 2,000 pigs there on, uh, on the hillside. And um, one of the things that I think is, why did, why did this happen with pigs? We don't really know. There's a lot of people that can give you good answers. I read, I read different commentaries about why Jesus sent them into pigs and what the answers are. And um, some of them are good answers and some of them are stupid. But, uh, you know, it, it, it does prove to us that it's a Gentile region, maybe. Um, someone actually argues that these are Jewish pig farmers. So they're going to, Jesus is even going to Jewish pig farmers. I, I, don't, I didn't quite get that. Um, here's two things that I think are helpful. I think they're helpful to me when I was thinking about it is it is a, what happens, we just read it, what happens in this text is a dramatic illustration of what's going to happen to the enemies of God. As they saw those 2,000 pigs come and fall off the cliff into the abyss. In, uh, in the Old Testament, abyss can also mean the d- depths of the sea, into the abyss and onto the beaches. Those pigs fall and they fall into the abyss. That's a dramatic illustration of what happens to the enemies of God. Another thing, another reason that I think, I didn't read this anywhere, but just made it up. Um, in some ways, I think 
Jesus sends them into the pigs and the pigs, part of God's creation, the pigs know exactly what they need to do with the enemies of God, right? The pigs say, we have the enemies of God within us. They belong in the abyss. Hey guys, giddy up, let's go. They decided we're going to go. I don't know. I didn't read that anywhere. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think it's, it, it, God's creation cries out. Those pigs obey God as they work, as they do it. Um, our king is more than giving us salvation. He is defeating his and our enemies. Um, and so, yeah, I'll skip that. What, what's the herdsman's response? What's the next slide say? Yeah, I'm going to skip those part. What's the herdsman's response? Um, what do they do? The people who are in charge of the pigs, how do they respond to this? Well, when Jesus does this to their pigs, they go talk to Jesus. No, we're going to go tell other people. Uh, we don't either. We don't like what he just did, or we like what he just did, and we just love to gossip, um, or we just love fail videos. And so this was crazy fail video. So I'm just going to go share it with the townsfolks. Maybe they were gossiping. I don't know but they don't go to Jesus. And so the townspeople come out. What do they do? Why are they out there? Why do you think the townspeople are out there? Maybe to see the death and the destruction. Maybe to see the death of that demoniac who'd caused them so much pain and trouble. He's been such a nuisance. This is like the epitome of a terrible HOA coming out to this pain and nuisance of this man out in the tombs. We're just going to go see his destruction. We don't know exactly why they came out there, but we do know how they responded to it, right? They respond, as soon as they see what happened, what do they see when they get down there? And just imagine you're there. This is what I was doing all week at VBS. Just imagine, kids, you see, you're in this situation, you're there. What do you see? They come out there, these townsfolks, they come out to the edge of the sea. And what do they see? They see dead pig carcasses everywhere. And they see Jesus Standing, they see his disciples and they see this man in clean clothes in his right mind, worshiping. And they were terrified. They were terrified. Jesus, get out. We don't like it. Once they saw it, they responded with fear. I'll re- um, go to the next slide. Doug Mill wrote this. Instead of weighing the evidence in Jesus's favor, the local people gave in to natural superstition and dread of the supernatural. They were blind to the moral meaning of what Jesus had done and the promise he gave of restoring other lives. They were more comfortable with the familiar than with the unexpected. The new thing that Jesus had done challenged their thinking in uncomfortable ways. Let's go ahead in the next slide. Many people prefer a busy or humdrum existence to any challenge to think for themselves and the change that Jesus brings Talk of the gospel makes them uneasy. They refuse to venture beyond what is familiar and routine. Sadly, like the Gerasenes, Jesus may grant their desire and leave them to their world of sandcastles. What do you think those townspeople did after Jesus left? They kicked him out. They said, Jesus, go away. We're terrified of you. We don't like what you did or we're terrified of it. What do you think they did? They probably cleaned up the pig carcasses and got a new herd and just try to keep doing what they're doing, try to keep a clean, happy life, went about their own life and tried to ignore the power of Jesus that just came in and amongst it. Does that in any way sound like something you and I do? 
when Jesus comes and does something, maybe even dramatic, we don't want to respond with, praise Jesus, let me go tell other people. No, we just try to wipe it under the rug, go back, our, go back about our normal life, and try to ignore the power of Jesus. If I can be a bit poetic, I would say maybe you and I should instead live among the pig carcasses for a little bit. You see, at that base of the cliff, the pigs' carcasses were everywhere. And they see a man worshiping Jesus. Maybe you and I need to be there. Maybe you and I need to live in and amongst death for just a minute. Jack Miller wrote this um, back in the 80s. Your life must have a death in it if it is to go anywhere. The greatest thing hindering revival at, he, he wrote New Life, his church, I write, our church, West End Prez, is the way we tend to run away from our own death. The cross can be evaded only so long, then if we keep away from it, we begin to create our own deaths. And we die thousands of times over, killed and re-killed by our anxieties. In other words, those garrisons, by rejecting Christ because of the death that they saw, they were resigning themselves to further and further death. And that's what you and I do. Even those that believe in Jesus and trust in Christ, that's what you and I do. We know the power of Jesus, and yet we reject his power so often. We reject the spiritual truth of the gospel, and we continue to live in and amongst, well, we continue to be dead, and we continue to be powerless in our lives. But maybe... Those things that um, are keeping us down, those things that we struggle with, those things that we feel powerless about, maybe you and I need to actually see that Jesus has defeated it. Jesus has defeated his and our enemies. You and I don't like pig carcasses everywhere. I want life to go perfectly. But maybe instead, you and I should be with Jesus in and amongst pig carcasses for a little bit. Maybe the struggle that you're with right now, if you have an addiction that you're struggled to, that you're, you're enraptured with, maybe you need to be in your addiction crying out to Jesus, help me. Jesus, I'm in and amongst my pig carcass of an addiction. Jesus, free me from this. Help me. Go talk to professionals, get counselor help, but also cry out, Jesus, help me. Don't ignore it and don't just say it's all natural. Say, Jesus, help me. If you are in a terrible marriage, and I know there are some in this room that are, cry out to Jesus, help me and my bride, help me and my groom to love one another. Help us. Go seek professional help. But also at the same time, my marriage is a pig carcass right now, and I need your help. So I return in conclusion to the question at the beginning of the sermon. You know, the disciples were asking, who is this guy? You and I may ask, where is the power that he talks about? I say to you, the power is in the name of Jesus. If you found that power, acknowledge it. Acknowledge the pig carcasses in your life. Acknowledge that maybe you're terrified of the tombs. Maybe you're terrified of your terrible neighbors, those crazy demoniacs, whoever they are in your lives. Acknowledge those things and cry out to the power found in Jesus. And we saw the healed man's response, and this was actually the um, third 
response, or yeah, the third response in the text. And this is the only one that Jesus doesn't give him his request. The, de- the demon said, Jesus, don't send us in the abyss. Send us into the pigs. Jesus says, okay, go into the pigs. The townspeople said, Jesus, go away. And Jesus said, okay, I'll go away. And then the healed, unnamed man says, Jesus, can I come with you? And he says, actually, I have something better. I have something better. Maybe when you have a response to a prayer that is not exactly what you want, maybe that's the word of Jesus. Maybe, maybe. This man received a commission, and I think you and I receive a commission from this as well. There's power found in Jesus. Our king doesn't just give us good things. He defeats his enemies. He defeats our enemies. That's worth us celebrating today. Um, We now come to the part in our service where we take communion. And if you will turn in your bulletins on page 10, as well as up on the screens behind me, these are the words of institution from Luke 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Now let's pray this prayer of confession together from Valley of Vision. Lord God Almighty, Son, mocked your providences, flattered you with my prayers, broken your covenant. It is only in light of your compassion that I am not consumed. At the cross, may I see the evil of sin and hate it. May I look on him whom I pierced as one slain for me and by me. May I never despise his death through unbelief. And whatever cross I am required to bear, let me see Jesus suffering mine. Believer, hear these words of encouragement from Romans. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his disciples. Well, as we come to this table, uh, we have two responses we could have, like those 
townspeople, when you come to this table and you see Jesus and you see the great work that he did for us in securing our salvation and defeating death, at the cross, at the moment when it seemed that Satan had great victory, it was in in fact the great victory of God himself where Jesus took on the death of all his people. At that moment, Satan seemed to have victory and yet he lost. And we know on the third day he rose again, Jesus securing salvation for you and me. For anyone who believes in Jesus and calls upon his name has great salvation. When you see that great mighty work that Jesus has done and see the beauty that it provides for us and see the power it provides for us, will we be like townspeople of the Gerasenes and say, Jesus, get out? Will we be like them and say, Jesus, I see the power offered, yet that disturbs my life and I don't want anything to do with that. Yes, I I confess that to be true on Sunday, but in my real life, in my real life, I don't want anything to do with that. I'll deal with things my own way. Or do you come to this table like the unnamed demoniac and say, Jesus, I was dead and now I'm alive. I was dead in and amongst tombs and now I'm alive. If you have made that public profession somewhere in your life where you have said, I was dead and now I'm alive again and I have nowhere to go except Jesus Christ and the salvation he offers and the victory he offers, then come, take, eat, and know that God is good. He's for you. If you're not yet there and you're still wondering who is this Jesus, take this as our gift to you. Sit, think, and pray and talk to Jesus and say, who is this Jesus? Um, As the elders come forward to help me pass out communion. Let me remind you that on the outer rings is wine and the inner rings is grape juice and all the bread is gluten-free.